Well, good evening. Um, first of all, I would like uh, to thank the Freud Museum and, and especially Stefan, Stefan Mariansky for a very kind uh, invitation. And let me say, I am, to say the least, honored uh, to be presenting my work here. Um, it's a very prestigious venue. And thank you all for attending the event. I would like to say a couple of words. You already said something, but I would like to say something more specific about how I intend to uh, structure this to our author's talk. Um, the book is quite long, so I'll have to make some decisions uh, about which parts of the book I will take into consideration. Of course, if you read the book, then you can actually uh, ask me questions about what I will not cover. I will begin um, with an overview of what I take, and this is not necessarily objective, I take this main theme uh, to be central uh, to my recent book. Uh, that is to say, the famous or infamous motto, there is no sexual relationship. So I will explain that very generally. And this will also help me to introduce um, an explanation of the title, the not to, with an hyphen. I will then introduce the general themes of one of the uh, specific chapters, chapter 2, uh, which is entitled Logic and Biology Against Biology. We're written with an iPhone, so we're talking about the logos of life. Why I choose this um, particular um, um, chapter? Because I think it should appeal to a broad audience uh, coming from the humanities, but also from the life sciences, not necessarily versed with all the theoretical subtleties of Lacanian like, psychoanalysis. This will in turn allow me this general presentation of the second chapter on the connection between logic and biology. This will allow me to focus then more specifically, and this will be possibly you know, the most consistent and long part of my presentation, on a section of this chapter, chapter 2, where I openly uh, deal or try to deal with uh, one of the vexed questions, not only about Lacanian psychoanalysis, but psychoanalysis in general, that is to say, what is the connection between psychoanalysis, Lacanian psychoanalysis, and science, and the life sciences in particular. So I intend to speak for approximately one hour. If I don't manage to tell you everything I'd like to say, I will stop. And then we will then have a Q&A session. And as I said, uh, you know, I'm happy to answer questions about the material I cover, but of course also about other parts uh, you may have read, uh, other chapters of the book. Now, uh, I think it's fair to say that my book moves um, from the presupposition that there is a most basic axiom of Lacanian psychoanalysis. And this most basic axiom is there is no sexual relationship. Il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel. Now, there is no sexual relationship would be empirically and historically, we should add, circumscribed by the clinic of psychoanalysis and then formalized by its theory. Yet, to um, take a step back, according to Lacan, at least my reading of Lacan, there is no sexual relationship in Yapa de Rapport Sexuel is somehow, somehow, already self-evident. And in this sense, intuitively axiomatic in the ancient Greek sense of the term axiom. 
Hmm? Why is it self-evident? Well, it's self-evident there is no sexual relationship in our everyday lives. At the level, at the specific level, which then permeates other levels of our, of our lives, of what we could call our love and sex misadventures. We, as uh, a species, have or tend to have a problem with sex. Let's put it like that, very bluntly, and then I will try to say something more specific. This is why Lacan says there is no sexual relationship. Of course, he tries to say much more, and I will try to cover that. Most of the time, where sex and love are concerned, we literally screw up. Hmm? And remember, Lacan in his seminars can be very complex and very convoluted, but at times he tries to make these points in a very intuitive and, of course, uh, simplistic manner. So I'm also trying to match up with his methodology by saying this. Importantly, for Lacan, there is no sexual relationship marks both, and I stress both, the ultimate deadlock and the origin of sexuation and subjectivity. Where there is no subjectivity without sexuation and no sexuation without subjectivity. What does it mean? Well, it means to say that there is no sexual relationship marks both the deadlock, there's a difficulty, as we said, and the origin of subjectivity. This means, basically, that there is no sexual relationship, but, nevertheless, there are sex liaisons. Lacan himself calls them like that. So, in English, the English translation here is quite um, making things more difficult, because there is no sexual relationship is in Yapade Hapo sex web. And I'll return later to what Hapo may mean in French. But there are, nevertheless, the other side of the coin, sexed liaisons, and Lacan in French uses the term relation. So this is my first general point throughout the book, and of course the book is much more specific, that there is no sexual relationship goes together, and we'll have to try and see why, with there are nevertheless sex liaisons, of course. We are living our love and sexual misadventures all the time. Things are difficult, but something happens. Okay, And we could also like, raise, raise this, this, this issue at a more general level of the species. Hmm? Maybe in, in a not-so-distant future we'll manage to self-destroy ourselves, but so far, in spite of perverting nature, we could say, we've done pretty well. Hmm? So this is the other side of there is no sexual relationship. So, there is no sexual relationship, let me repeat this, but, nevertheless, there are sex liaisons. However, another complication, these sex liaisons do not rely on what? On a measure, on a ratio. So, I think here it's important to understand that rapport means not relation, specifically, but measure, ratio. There are sex liaisons, but they do not rely on a ratio between what? Between the two sexes. That, that would be my first intuitive way of explaining 
this most basic axiom of Lacanian psychoanalysis, there is no sexual relationship. As Lacan puts it in not so an elegant manner, he says, a good fuck does not in the least refute there is no sexual relationship. Hmm? So there are sex liaisons, the way I translate relation, is on eux des relations, they have a relation, you say it even in English. So there are sex liaisons, but those liaisons cannot be understood in terms of what? In terms of a ratio, there is no formula for sex. Sex is problematic logically, epistemologically, and the rest of my presentation later on, when I will be speaking about the relation between psychoanalysis and science, will be much more focused on this topic. Now, let me say something more on there is no sexual relation. Again, I think if I had to pick one uh, notion or one reframe which gives the kernel of the book, again, it is there is no sexual relationship. In a way, this is a book about there is no sexual relationship. That's not a good title, is it? And then you'll see how the not to ties in with there is no sexual relationship. By the way, I didn't expect to say that, but uh, the not do is a quite technical title, and it was sort of like mediated with um, MIT Press. The, the way I wanted to um, incite the book was using a phrase like I'm, um uses in Seminar 19, and it's the unfuckable partner. Hmm? <laughs> so there is a partner, there are liaisons, but actually, at the end of the day, this partner is unfuckable, imbezable. Of course, MIT didn't like that. So, a blunt, on the basis of what we said, yet I think persuasive way to explain there is no sexual relationship, would be to say that most men and women, and then we'll say more about what it means, men and women, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, most men and women do indeed have sex, make love, try to have sex, try to make love, but with all kinds of difficulties. For the same reason, some men and women, the clinic teaches us, such as certain hysterics, refuse to engage in the sexual act altogether. These difficulties are not only experienced in our everyday life at a straightforward level. We are continuously thinking about what's wrong with our uh, liaisons. But they can be observed, studied, and treated as symptoms in a consulting room. I'm a philosopher, but the empirical, if you can say so, part of psychoanalysis for me is crucial. Lacan, as a theorist, would not be interesting for me, and we can discuss this later, if you were not a practicing analyst. These difficulties are more widely, if we go back to Freud and hysteric, what generated the request for psychoanalytical treatment in the first place, at a specific historical moment. There is something wrong with my body, at that point, not even so evident that that is connected with sex, and medicine doesn't have an answer. This theory goes to Freud. I'm, I'm simplifying, but I think this is the main issue here. So psychoanalysis emerged out of an interest in this predicament, sexual predicament, and discovered what Lacan calls an element, and I quote, of indetermination. Something non-measurable pertaining to what? To what we could call sexual need. There is an element of indetermination 
pertaining to human sexual need. This something non-measurable, this non-measurability, renders vain any attempt at founding and understanding the sexual liaisons we concretely, undoubtedly, with difficulty establish with the other sex as a relationship. So again, there are sex liaisons, but those liaisons are not a relationship in terms of a ratio, of a measure, of a even formula, given that we will be speaking about um, um, about science and the connection with, with psychoanalysis. Mm? There is no formula of sex, like there is a formula of inertia. I'm paraphrasing closely uh, Lacan here. Mm? Now, let me dwell more on there is no sexual relationship from two other perspectives. The first one, I call it, I call it an intuitive and in this sense axiomatic uh, approach, the one we just discussed. Now I would like to say something from a more philosophical perspective and then from a numerical perspective, and this should give you the connection between there is no sexual relationship and the title, the not two, which is a numerical title. Philosophical way to explain there is no sexual relationship would be to say that the speaking being, Homo sapiens, as a species, cannot symbolically represent straightforwardly sex as such. There is a problem of representation. There is a problem in the convergence of language and sex. Language cannot really say sex. Hence, at bottom, and this is crucial to my book, but it's also crucial in general for Lacan throughout his work, sex remains a logical impossibility. So why is it difficult to establish sex liaisons of which we actually cannot give a formula or express them in terms of something that makes sense? Because sex, as such is for our species, logically, at bottom, impossible. Hmm? Impossible in the sense that we cannot epistemologically embrace it. I'm revolving around the same point all the time from a different perspective. So the absence of the sexual relationship, there is no sexual relationship, amounts fundamentally, and this is something that Alain Badiou says very clearly, and I think he's right, the absence of the sexual relationship amounts to what? To the absence of sexual meaning. Go even back to the early case histories, uh, Freud's case history. What's the problem with little ones? The problem is that sex doesn't make sense. And he has to construct theories to make it somehow make sense. And of course those are wrong theories. Everybody has it. The steam engine has it. Mommy has it, etc. But at bottom, what we're dealing with from a Lacanian perspective is a logical impossibility. An impossibility to represent straightforwardly sex. To say it, even. As Lacan puts it, the issue at stake is fundamentally a sexual absence. So it works in French, but also in English. Absence. Absence. The absence is an absence of meaning. As Lacan puts it in Seminar 11, and Seminar 11 uh, 
means this is like something he says many years before formulating, at least a decade before formulating, explicitly there is no sexual relationship. As he puts it in Seminary 11, and I quote, in the psyche, there is nothing by which the subject may directly situate himself or herself as a male or female being. Again, there's a, a basic problem between language and sex. Mm? And then the old question for Lacan, question which I also discuss extensively in the book, but it's a question which is more philosophical, and Lacan says, well, I, do, I don't care about this question, but then he speaks about it, is what comes first? Is it because of language that there is no sexual relationship? Or is it because of the, there is no sexual relationship that we speak? Mm? Of course, this is another level of discussion, a more ontological level of discussion. Now, a sexual localization can nonetheless be achieved somehow. How? Well, only in a complex, incomplete, and precarious manner. By means of what? Well, by means of what at one point Lacan calls, I think pertinently, culturally mediated equivalence. What is the more technical term for that? It's what Lacan calls the phallic function. Now, um, in my book, I deal extensively with the phallic function. I try to explain what it is in two long chapters, three and four. We can return to that. But uh, quick question, quick answer. What is the phallic function, in my understanding, for Lacan? It is Lacan's updating and formalizing what Freud called the Oedipus and castration complex. Hmm? the way in which, in the end, we manage to achieve a sexual localization and thereby establish sex liaisons in spite of the fact that there is no sexual relationship. So there is a problem with sex because we are speaking beings, but nonetheless, we manage somehow to make, to patch things up, to make things work. Not really, because we continue to have difficulties with sex, but somehow things work. Hmm? And that's actually what Freud was initially struggling when he, 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 he developed the um, Oedipus and castration complex, complexes. Hmm? Sexuation is not straightforward. It happens in a convoluted manner. Now, third way to approach there is no sexual relationship, uh, on top of what I call the intuitive, axiomatically intuitive manner and the philosophical manner, numerically. So, there is no sexual relationship can be, according to Lacan, uh, approached as an issue, as a the crucial issue of the speaking being vis-à-vis -vis sexuality or sexuality, numerically. And this is why I pay spe special attention throughout the book uh, to what Lacan calls himself, in Seminar 19, the not-to, le pas-de. Hmm? And you can debate whether there, there is an iPhone there or not. And you know, like Lacan's Seminars, uh, of course, were not written on the spot, so that hyphen added or not added to not to can mean many things. We can return to that in the discussion. So what is the not to? For Lacan, Homo sapiens as a speaking species is, we could say, fundamentally characterized by difference. This difference is the sexual difference between 
and I repeat this point, the semblance of the one, the semblance of the one that defines those subjects who are sexed as men, and the not one that defines those subjects who are sexed as women. In short, one and not one make not two. This is a brief introduction, because then we'll move to another topic. But I just wanted to give like a very general idea of what is this not to. So, sexual difference means difference, I repeat the point, between the semblance of the one, a semblance of the one that defines man, and the not one that defines those subjects who are sex as woman. Importantly, and this is a, clearly a very controversial issue in Lacanian psychoanalysis, especially for gender studies, uh, men and women, it's important to insist on this, are not, absolutely not, biological categories for Lacan. Men and women, this is why I actually sort of put them in inverted commas, men and women are what then? They are the two only ways in which the X of Homo sapiens, as a speaking being, can cope with the absence of the sexual relationship, and thereby found difficult, but however functioning, more or less, sex liaisons. Hmm? So men and women are symbolical categories, and more specifically, they are the only two ways in which the X, which is neither a man nor a woman, hmm, of Homo sapiens can cope tentatively and partly with there is no sexual relationship. Remember what I've said before. So there is a fundamental problem between uh, sexuality for Homo sapiens and language. Nonetheless, there are sex liaisons. We somehow manage mm, to establish sex, sexual liaisons with our partners. In this context, men and women are symbolical categories that are not pre-given substantially. Mm? But they are the ways in which the X, we could even say the animal X of our species, copes with things nonetheless. Of course, some cope better than others, and some go and see a psychoanalyst. Some should go and see a psychoanalyst. Why not? Well, the other assumption here is that we should all go and see a psychoanalyst, according to Lacan. And we should never stop seeing a psychoanalyst. What about anatomical difference? Another con um, quite controversial issue. Well, in my understanding, we have to actually always bear in mind that there is an, an element which has to do with anatomy. So, men and women are symbolical and not biological categories, but nonetheless, anatomical difference is no doubt relevant in this context, but submitted to symbolic sexual difference. So if sex to begin with doesn't make sense, there is no way of straightforwardly saying there's a set of men and a set of women. There are symbolic ways in which we can cope with the absence of the sexual relationship, our problem as a species we have with language, hmm, whereby we are sexuated as either men and women. But at the same time, 
want us not to forget completely the fact that we do have a body. My point here, which I discuss in many different ways in the book, is to say that on the one hand, it's very important to stress against, for Lacanians, against uh, criticism coming especially from gender studies. Uh, it's very important to stress that Lacanian psychology deals with what he calls the phallus and not the penis. But at the same time, the phallus comes from the body. Otherwise, we would have like a totally free-floating, idealistic theory. It has to come from somewhere. Lacan, in Seminar 19, concerning anatomical difference, he calls it the little difference. I like that. It's the little different. The, the little difference. The, the, um, um, the anatomical difference concerning sexual organs, he calls it the little difference, which exists. But it is logically submitted to symbolic sexual difference. So you begin with the little difference, which, as we said, doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And retrospectively, that anatomical little difference is given a sexual value, but only through a kind of symbolization. So, let me go back to um, what I said in terms of um, uh, the, 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 the title of the book, so the not two. To sum up, the title means that one, or better, the semblance of the one, which characterizes those subjects who are sexuated as men, and the not one that characterizes those subjects sexuated as women, do not make two, but rather make not two. Hmm? Let me say something more about that. So, one and not one do not make two. Why? Well, since the not one of woman is irreducible, according to Lacan, to the one, so you have one and not one, this cannot make two, nor for the same reason, that is to say, the fact that woman is irreducible to the one, they make a more comprehensive or fusional one. Let me repeat this point. So, one and not one neither make two nor a more comprehensive fusional one. Fusional one like in Plato's Symposium, for instance. The the, the androgynous myth, if you remember. So, what does the not two I think it does condense the idea that our love and sex life, everything that happens in our everyday love and sexual life, is fundamentally, on the level of the species, dictated by man's impossibility of fusing, of fusing, with the otherness, the heteros of woman. Woman does not represent herself as one. She represents herself as not one, hence she cannot be another one. Another one whereby a two as one would follow from the addition of one and one. There are, as we said from the beginning, nevertheless, concrete sex or sexual liaisons but they are sustained only by what Lacan calls a phallic function. 
This phallic function, which philosophically we could also understand in terms of a transcendental logic, vaguely Kantian, this phallic function attempts to secure the impossibility, there is no sexual relationship, but succeeds in doing so only partly. Why only partly? Well, again, because woman is sex that's not one. Or, to put it differently, by using another famous phrase Lacan uses, woman remains not all, and here the hyphen is mandatory, woman remains not all, but caught in the semblance of the one. Hmm? I mean, this was a bit of a tour de force, because I, I really try to uh, condense, as I said, the title, the explanation of the title. And, um, um, of course, I welcome questions about this general, but also quite technical issue, the, the title of the book, the not to. Um, I'm just checking out what we're doing with time, because, of course, I have a lot of stuff prepared, and maybe we have to... Um, skip something so that we can have a good Q&A session. So I will actually now um, for the remaining half an hour or so turn to the specific issue of the scope and limits of a possible dialogue between Lacanian psychoanalysis and the life sciences. Hmm? What I've skipped here is basically a very general point which has to do with um, the fact that Lacanian psychoanalysis, unlike what is claimed at times even by Lacanian, does deal with biological sex. And it would be absurd for psychoanalysis to say uh, psychoanalysis deals with phalluses, pluses and minuses, transcendental logics, the phallic function, but it doesn't deal with... Uh, biological sex. Of course, Lacan has a critique of the biological take on sex. Okay, so this is the entry point for me. So, on the specific issue of the scope and limits of a possible dialogue between Lacanian psychoanalysis and the life sciences, which I take to be very important because, precisely because of that, because Lacanian practice and theory cannot forget um, that sexuality is also biological. So there is no doubt that throughout his work, Lacan attempts to dismantle what he sees as the fusional bias, the fusional bias of biologists' take on sex. Again, what it takes to be this fusional bias is the general idea that one and one makes a more comprehensive one. One and one makes a more comprehensive one when they come together. Close, closely linked to um, this, that is to say, is attempt at dismantling this idea of the one and one coming together into a new, more comprehensive one, even at the level of the zygote, if you want to be more uh, biological. Linked to this is Lacan's critique, which is also present throughout his work, of... Um, Biologists underlying presupposition that the speaking being serves an end. Hmm? That the speaking being, all of us, is founded on the basis of a final cause, which is what? 
to live in a quite vulgar, vulgarized, vulgarized version of Darwin, to live, or more precisely, as Lacan puts it, to survive. In other words, to postpone death and dominate his rival. So, what is the problem with biology for Lacan? Well, very bluntly put, the problem with biology for Lacan is that it's not really a science, an algebraic, Galilean, Newtonian science. Why? Because it still presupposes a sort of like <clears throat> fusional um, approach to nature, whereby basically what happens in this specific instance of reproduction is the addition of one and one into a more comprehensive one. Connected with that, the problem uh, with biology for Lacan is its finalism. This is what I've been trying to say. So, biology presupposes that the speaking being, at the end of the day, serves an end. It's based on a final cause, and this end is to survive. Now, I'm aware of the fact that Lacan's critique here is partly uh, demodern outdated, because he, he has certain uh, Darwinian biologists in mind when he, um, um, when, when, when he puts forward this point in the 70s, and there have been rewritings of Darwinian theory over the last 40 years, which make things much more, uh, um, um, more complex in terms of whether there is a finalism in Darwinian theory or not. I'm aware of that. So, on the one hand, I guess that Lacan's attack on this finalism or teleology of mainstream Darwinism still remains extremely topical. On the other hand, though, I'm equally of the opinion that for a question of dates, Lacan is saying these things in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Lacan has missed not only the full extent of the ongoing revolution in the life sciences. And this is something that Jean-Claude Milner notices. But also, the life sciences' potential for self-critique. So what I am advocating generally in the second chapter of the book is a cautious dialogue between Lacanian psychoanalysis and new developments in the uh, life sciences. What I'm trying to avoid is, A, the sort of like quite extremely orthodox Lacanian stance on we're not dealing with biological sex sense, we don't have to dialogue uh, with biology. And on the other hand, actually, psychoanalysis can be uh, totally recuperated by uh, some forms of contemporary neuropsychology or whatever. Mm? So on the one hand, psychoanalysis doesn't have anything to do with biology on, because it's all about language. Mm? The unconscious is structured like a language, and this should exonerate like in a psychoanalysis um, from dialoguing with uh, the life sciences with regard specifically with what is sex. On the other hand, there is a parallel risk um, to actually um, submit psychoanalysis to a contiguous science, life science, which would totally... Um, incorporated. Of course, that would, that would have been Freud's dream, right? Freud says at one point, like, psychoanalysis will be superseded by, by biology at one point. Uh, Lacan was not of the same opinion. Why? Well, very, very bluntly put, well, because science, if not specifically the life sciences, modern science, tends to forget the subject. That would have been Lacan's answer. Now, with a specific regard to... Um, 
what this dialogue could be, in my opinion. Where do I think there is ground for developing a dialogue between Lacanian of psychoanalysis and uh, the life sciences? So, Lacan profoundly questions what he calls the imaginary, or you could even say anthropomorphic, basis of our take on sex. Basically, our attempt to reduce the duality of sex, which we've discussed as a not-to before, so one and not one, to reduce that to a supposed complementarity between male and female, which has been a leitmotif of at least Western civilization for the last, uh, what, 3,000 years. <clears throat> the idea that sexuality has to be understood in terms of two poles, a plus and a minus. Mm? Uh, activity and passivity. Think of Aristotle and, and Plato, as Lacan says. I mean, Plato's and Aristotle's philosophy are actually uh, uh, presupposing this very imaginary, to use a Lacanian Lacan term, take on sex. So, Lacanian psychoanalysis, because of all we said about the not to, which it takes to be real, hmm, criticizes, profoundly questions the idea that sexuality should be understood in terms of a complementarity between a male pole and a female pole. Again, one and one coming together and creating a more comprehensive one. I mean, it sounds very stupid, but if, if you think about it, really, I mean, this kind of um, totally archaic, in a sense, imaginary schematization still works today. Hmm? Still works today. This is to say we are all possibly influenced by this kind of schematization. So Lacan profoundly questions this idea through the not to, what I call the not to, we can, we can also phrase it in different ways. But for a question of dates, as Milnea says, he doesn't know in the early 70s that this kind of questioning resurfaces today or in the last 10 years in cutting-edge debates in fields such as psychobiology and behavioral neuroscience. So again, my methodological stance, I, don't want, I do not want to submit psychoanalysis to psychobiology or bio, behavioral neuroscience, but it would be stupid for psychoanalysis not to take a look at what is going on there. It would be stupid for Lacanians to uh, stick to what is at times a very hasty, quite correct, theoretically speaking, condemnation of the mainstream Darwinism of uh, the 50s and 60s and 70s. Biology and life sciences have changed a lot. Now, my claim here is that, uh, I repeat this one, which is quite crucial to the chapter, uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis, the way in which it questions the supposed complementarity between a male and a female pole to understand sex, this questioning is matching and resurfaces in current cutting-edge debates in the life sciences. As uh, Mark Bloomberg, a psychobiologist, put it in a recent book devoted to the complication of uh, development and evolution, significantly entitled Freaks of Nature, I like that, Bloomberg says, quote, anything goes. When it comes to sex, expect ambiguity. He's speaking as a psychobiologist and a behavioral neuroscientist. Here, Bloomberg, in this book published, um, I think, 2007 by Oxford, 2009, Oxford University Press, 
Bloomberg describes, among others, from a scientific perspective, organisms that lack sex chromosomes, although their sexes are as identifiable as male and female as those in most mammalian species. Crocodiles. So crocodile, simplifying the quite detailed empirical description that um, Bloomberg gives, crocodiles appear to be as male and female as we are, homo hominis sapientis. Actually, they totally lack sex chromosomes. This is what science tells us. Bloomberg goes on to um, describe organisms, mammalian organisms, that possess an erectile penis-like clitoris, a scrotum, but no vagina. And this is the, the case of the um, so-called female, well, um, the female of the spotted hyena. Hmm? Organisms that switch sex depending on circumstances. That is to say, organisms that are structurally, organically hermaphroditic, hermaphroditic until the end, we could say, in their DNA. Let's put it like that. And this is the case of the tobacco fish. This is also a nice one. Organisms that are technically asexual, i.e. clones. They, they actually reproduce as clones. Yet the female mates with males of closely related species, not the same species. Transfer of, of sperm takes place, but there is no genetic exchange. And this is the case of the Amazon Molly, which was thought is sort of like an Amazon sea bass, something like that. It's actually quite tasty, I was told. Um, so you see my general point. My general point is that when Lacan speaks of a imaginary bias conditioning uh, the biological take on, uh, on sex, is right up to a certain point, but for a question of dates, he has not actually been exposed by the time of his death to what is core and cutting-edge research on the nature of sex from a life sciences and biological perspective. Now, I cannot enter into a detailed discussion of the fascinating examples that Bloomberg gives, so the crocodile, the spotted hyena, the female spotted hyena, the tobacco fish, and the Amazon molly, there are others. And nor, methodologically, this is important, do I intend to use these examples uh, as a kind of like objectively factual scientific proof of what psychoanalysis would have merely intuited. So what I'm claiming here is not like, haha, Freud already knew that, now science is proving it. I think that would be wrong, in a sense. What I'm just saying is that, on the one hand, Lacan's critique of the teleology, or the finalism of Darwinian theory, is still quite topical today. On the other hand, Lacan, for a question of date, was not exposed to what is happening now in terms of a self-critique in the life sciences, which also, of course, has to do with what sex is for the life sciences. Clearly, um, in order to explain reproduction uh, in organisms that lack sex chromosomes, although they are as anatomically identifiable as male and female as all of us, you need to actually change also the theory, right? I mean, all these animal examples require a profound updating of Darwinian theory. 
Now, we can nonetheless uh, draw some um, tentative, if not conclusion, consequences. And I, I will mention three, and then I have a lot, but I would like then to open up the floor. There's already quite a lot. So, you know, like I will speak for 10, 15 minutes more. So I'm trying to actually substantiate what I'm calling for. This is to say a cautious dialogue between Lacanian psychoanalysis and new cutting-edge uh, debates in, um, in the life sciences. And actually, if you are more familiar with these debates than I am, I mean, I'm actually, I don't have a scientific background, I am a philosopher, uh, what I generally have in mind is what goes by the name of evolutionary developmental theory, evil Debo. Uh, Evil Debo is actually, um, I would say, one of the most profound attempts over the last three decades to, to update and, and uh, um, challenge some of the most mainstream uh, uh, tenets of uh, Darwinianism. And by the way, there's also like a quite serious attempt at uh, um, reevaluating, reassessing some aspects of Lamarckism. And the, 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 the biologists I'm talking about, published uh, with MIT Press, I mean, the, these are quite, the, these are no wacko marginal figures. Okay, I mean, th- these are debates which have profound uh, 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 scientific credibility. Of course, they are not mainstream. Now, what, what else can we say, putting together Lacan's take on sex, specifically the biology of sex, and the problem he thinks biology has with accounting for sex and these debates in the life, current debates in the life sciences. Now, first of all, the examples that Bloomberg give reinforce Freud, very generally. Freud's broad, and we, have to forget, we don't have to forget that, in his time, revolutionary idea that sexuality, or at least human sexuality, is not really predetermined. This, this is a claim that Freud makes throughout his work. <coughs> That human sexuality is not bound to what we could say is or would be an unequivocal standard of what is masculine and what is feminine. Clearly, for Freud, this lack of an equivocal standard has to do with a behavioral uh, level, right? Um, for science, the examples we have made right now, uh, given by Bloomberg, this lack of an equivocal standard of what is masculine, what is feminine, is not just behavioral, but also, as we said with the example, morphological and genetical. Mm. Which is not to say, I would love to add this because it's important, which is not to say that Freud does not problematically, in my view, from a Lacanian perspective, posit an a priori distinction between masculinity and femininity. I think there is such thing in Freud, not in Lacan, because the starting point is the absence of sexual relationship. It's the X. Not man or woman, or masculine or feminine. In Freud, I would say, there is a problematic, a priori distinction between masculinity and femininity, but what falls under these two categories is very fluid. I think this is um, Freud's overall take. Or what falls under one of these two categories may have more intuitively uh, been thought as falling under the other category. And I would say, like, what's, what's clear here is a clear example of this would be to say that, well, an adult man never completely loses a certain feminine disposition. I mean, this is a claim that Lacan, um, Freud makes as, as early as 1905 in the three essays, where he says a certain degree of anatomical hermaphroditism um, occurs no, uh, um, normally. This is a direct quote. But also, on the other hand, 
there is, of course, uh, one could say, uh, a certain masculine aspect of the little girl's psychosexual development. Mm? Otherwise, we wouldn't be speaking about pe- uh, penis envy, etc., etc. So what I'm saying is that these scientific ex- examples actually um, go even beyond Freud, if you look at these examples from a psychoanalytical perspective. Because Freud identifies a certain lack of unequivocal standards between what is masculine and what is feminine only at the behavioral level. Here we are dealing with uh, a scientific take on what is, I would say, undecidedly, in a way, masculine or feminine, not only behaviorally, but also morphologically and genetically. Um, as Bloomberg, again, the author of Freaks of Nature, has it, in a presumably deliberate wing, I take it as, as such, at psychoanalysis, quote Bloomberg, sex, a scientist speaking, sex is a syndrome, a collection of symptoms. However, as a collective, these symptoms allow for a diagnosis of male or female. Sex is a syndrome, a collection of symptoms. However, as a collective, these symptoms allow for a diagnosis of male or female. Not here, and this is something we could return in the discussion, how this lack of unequivocal standards of masculinity or femininity, which I take to actually be one of the regions where psychoanalysis, Freud and Lacan could dialogue with the sciences, is not matched by the by now mandatory gender studies idea that there are not only two sexes. Bloomberg and Lacan would agree is that um, Bloomberg uh, is clearly here, if we read the quote, taking for granted, scientifically in his view, that there are two sexes. Mm. There are two sexes, but there is no unequivocal standard for um, distinguishing what falls under one category and what falls under the other category. And here I think this is something which, coming from a completely different perspective, could be made to dialogue with Lacanian psychoanalysis. And yes, of course, I said, I think Bloomberg winks at psychoanalysis, but this is as far as it goes. I mean, it doesn't deal with psychoanalysis. Second main point um, I would like to make to show how uh, the life sciences and Lacanian psychoanalysis could be made to dialogue um, is to, by keeping in mind the examples we described, given by Bloomberg, is to say that these examples... Um, seem to support Lacan's contention that the real of sexual difference goes hand in hand for us with the impossibility of establishing sex straightforwardly on the simple basis of, we could say, observable physical disparities in genitalia. Hmm? We go back to the point we made at the beginning. Man and woman are symbolic categories. If you take this point, which is much more convoluted than psychology, but I think this is a decent summary. If you take this point seriously, then you have to think also um, the distance and the gap between symbolic sexuality and observable physical disparities in genitalia. Mm? I mean, one does not follow from the other. Mm? Men and women are not such because of 
Again, what Lacan calls the little anatomical difference, which is so little, he says at, at one point, that, and this is reinforced, I think, by Freud, for the, for the child, it's indifferent. If, especially like in a psychoanalysis, if the child, basically what he or she wants is being the phallus of the mother, uh, this, uh, this indifference with regard to what he or she is anatomically is already evident at that level. Hmm? So the physical disparities in genitalia, and this is a Lacanian point, are, we could say, phallically constructed only in a retroactive way. They are constructed, so there is a, geni- there is a disparity in genitalia, observ- observable. We are roughly divided, as Lacan says, uh, as animals, between those who have a penis and those who have a vagina, to put things very bluntly. So this is a matter of fact, nobody's doubting that. But psychoanalysis, in a sense, not only was born with the request of the hysteric, it was also born with little Hans's perplexity as to what that means, that disparity. And all the absurd fantasies he has to make sense of that. So mommy has it, the steam engine has it, milking the cow is like actually whittling, if you remember. Mm? So the anatomical little difference doesn't make sense by itself. This is a Lacanian point. You see, if you simplify to this level, you see how uh, this connects with what we just said about a scientific approach to the sexuality of spotted hyena. Mm? Remember, like the spotted hyena, the example that uh, Bloomberg uh, gives us, and by the way, apparently the spotted hyena is one of the animals with one of the highest mortality uh, rates at birth, precisely because of this anatomy. So the female spotted hyena uh, is an organism that possesses an erectile penis like clitoris, a scrotum, and no vagina. Mm. You see what I'm trying to ma- make, um, the connection I'm trying to make? I'm, I'm trying to make a connection between um, this, sort of like, let's call it, objective empirical, for the time being, scientific evidence, and what Lacan says in terms of the indifference at bottom, initially at least, of the anatomical little difference as our physical disparity in genitalia. Hmm? For Lacan, of course, we then identify the penis and the vagina as such, but that is a retroactive, ontogenetically speaking, for the child, um, creation mediated, to cut a long story short, by language, via language, and more specifically the phallic function. Hmm? We can return to this, but this is like the other second... Uh, um, uh, main area of dialogue I see um, just to make a you know brief joke but um, I would say that seeing a female you remember like that Hans um, big problem with the Whittler in terms of like uh, ob- observation for Hans is actually when um, he's taken to Vienna Zoo uh, by, by his father and of course he sees the lion uh, with a big whittler. Um, well, imagine if at that point, early 20th century, Hans would have seen a female hyena at Vienna Zoo, rather than a lion or a horse in the street. Uh, we could guess that that would have made little Hans even more right, in a sense, or even more perplexed. 
uh, as to his sex and that of his mother. Try to persuade him that actually his mother does not have the whittler. So why the female hyena has the whittler? Uh, why, why is the female hyena a female hyena? You know, you can see all this uh, trend of very speculative question being asked by, 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 by a child without problems. And by the way, this is also, and I think this is where dialectically the whole thing becomes quite beautiful, this example, putting together this hypothetical idea of, um, of Hans seeing a, a female spotted hyena with its huge penis-like, with her huge penis-like clitoris in the zoo, um, this is also a way to say that now, you know, we all continue, even in scientific books, to be a bit like little Hans. As adults, we can continue to confuse the inner clitoris with a gigantic penis. Hmm? You, you see the other side of the, of the point? I mean, wh- why does the fact the female hyena, which like every other mammalian reproduces genetically in a certain manner, whatever, etc., etc., why is it so problematic that um, actually the female hyena um, possesses an erectile penis-like clitoris? Why, why do we still have to say that? Why do we have to say penis-like? Hmm? So we still are struggling with what uh, uh, Hans was struggling. I mean, I'm trying to simplify this point. It's quite complex, both on the Lacanian side and uh, on the life sciences um, side, but I think it's, it's an interesting area. The third, and then I will stop. I'm sorry, I managed to actually present half of what I prepared, but this is also inevitable. And maybe I will be able to actually introduce more uh, issues when we discuss. The third main area of dialogue I can see uh, between psychoanalysis, like in psychoanalysis in particular, and the life sciences, starting from this telling example given by Bloomberg, uh, has to do um, with, uh, and here Lacan is a bit ambiguous, with the lay Lacan, I would say, uh, resistance to singling out the uh, exceptionality of the uh, homo sapiens sexuality as opposed to the total reduction to instincts of animal sexuality. Mm. Um, if you know Lacan a bit, you remember that actually the early Lacan is very Heideggerian in his take on um, the relation between uh, the speaking being, not even homo sapiens, of course, and animals. So Lacan in his early seminars seem to have this a priori and very problematic philosophically if you are a materialist opposition between the openness of the human world and the supposed close environment of the animal. And by the way in the same years if you think of Conrad Lawrence um, or things such as close genetic programs uh, uh, Ernest Meyer etc. This Heideggerian idea that the, 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 the animal is a sort of like um, really well thought out and uh, properly functioning robot, basically. Uh, w- w- this idea was not only present in, onto- in, in ontology, in Heidegger's philosophy, but it was also like a mainstream uh, genetic Darwinism that propounded that. Now, this is completely problematized. But the later Lacan makes a very strong point, about which I discussed quite a length in the book, to sort of like mm, self-criticize his earlier stance, which was Heideggerian. That is to say, with regard to not just life in general, but uh, sexuality, it doesn't make sense, or actually, it, this would denote a certain theoretical weakness to oppose neatly 
um, the closed environment of the animal, where sexuality, as per Erlakan, happens as a connection between a key and a keyhole, like I said, and our, who knows why and how, completely uh, unpredictable human sexuality as irreducible to instincts. So, my point here is to say that the Lay Lacan resistance to singling out human openness as opposed to the closure, the closed environment of the animal with regard to sexuality is also corroborated by uh, certain cutting-edge debates in, uh, in the life sciences. And again, I mean, as a kind of... Uh, um, um, epitome of that, bear in mind, um, bear in mind what, what Bloomberg says, in a sense, uh, um, I can give another quote, I mean, human and non-human sex, Bloomberg, is a meandering, unfolding path. Mm. So we are here very far from the dogmatic mainstream Darwinian approach to sexuality by a genetics, whereby uh, genes uh, would totally uh, um, condition sexuality phenotypically. Mm? So whereby the biology of sex would ultimately come down to the identity of sex chromosome. This idea, which I think is still taught at primary school around the world, I mean, doesn't make sense for most serious life scientists today. And this idea was still mainstream when Lacan was speaking. Mm? Genes, when they are present, because we know that crocodiles, actually, in spite of, in this case, being as easy, easily identifiable as male and female as we are, uh, do not have those genes. So genes, when they are present, do indeed have an influence on the unfolding path of uh, human and non-human sexuality. But this does not in the least allow us to invoke the existence of so-called closed genetic programs. Uh, to give you a very quick definition, and this was like mainstream, credible scientific um, doxa up until, I would say, the 70s um, in genetics. A closed genetic program uh, is the program, and I'm quoting Ernest Meyer, I think got very close to getting a Nobel Prize. Uh, oh, you got it, actually. I, I, now I don't remember, but we're talking about main, very, very respected, well-respected biologists. Uh, a close genetic program is a problem for recognizing the appropriateness of the future mate, which is contained completely in the original fertilized zygote. Mm? So basically, since the two cells get together and create a new being, mm, there is a close genetic program that already at this cellular level uh, would um, allow us, each of us, to recognize the, and I'm quoting Meyer, appropriateness of the future mate. So, total genetic determinism uh, with regard to what sex is. Now, this stuff, even if you're not, and I'm not, uh, a biologist, I'm, I just try and read and, you know, problematize these things from a philosophical perspective. Now, this mainstream doxa is no longer credible. There is epigenetics, there are other things. Hmm? So here also I see a quite rich area where Lacanian psychoanalysis could, could be made to dialogue with uh, the life sciences. Um, and again, and I'll conclude here because I think it's good to open up the discussion. Um, remember what I said before about my methodology. My point is not to say Freud and Lacan especially 
were very smart guys, and now science is catching up. So science is objectively proving that sex is much more complex than science used to say when Freud and Lacan said what they say and they were considered like crazy. Now, I'm not saying that. I think that would not methodologically be interesting. Psychoanalysis is not a proto-science or uh, a discourse that aspires to be a science. Remember, uh, Lacan makes this distinction in Seminar 11. The right question is not the usual question to think of all the criticism of psychoanalysis and Freud had received since, since the beginning of psychoanalysis. The right question is not, is psychoanalysis a science? I'm really closely paraphrasing Lacan. The right question is, what is a science that would be hospitable to psychoanalysis? And I think these areas are very sketchily uh, described show us that, then, in my view, there is a problem with these new trends in the life sciences, which, to put it in a Freudian fashion, and even if you look at debates internal to this, uh, discussion internal to these circles of, 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 of um, life scientists, they are aspiring at a new synthesis. They call it like that. They are aspiring at a new mega-paradigm. So basically, what you're saying is, the, uh, what, 150 years hegemonic paradigm we've had to explain sexuality in terms of Darwinism plus Mendelianism is no longer working. Now we're finding a new one. What is the problem with that for psychoanalysis? Well, go back to the new introductory lectures in Freud. Freud says, if psychoanalysis is not something, it is not a Weltanschau. It is not a vision of the world. A discourse that tries to totalize knowledge. So even this new um, incredibly interesting if you're a philosopher interested in psychoanalysis trends in the life sciences are working towards a new uh, supposedly over-encompassing um, paradigm and the way I've finished this, this, this section of the second chapter is actually to, um, to claim that maybe in a not so distant future um, this kind of science of life science could come up at the end of the day of the apple, uh, the, the, the ratio that Lacan says cannot be scientifically or even like discursively uh, enunciated with regard to sex. But even if that were the case, then we're missing the point of psychoanalysis. Hmm? The point of psychoanalysis is, in logical terms, uh, well, as Lacan used to say, that there is no meta-language. That this course is structurally incomplete, and science, however uh, open-minded, um, according to Lacanian psychoanalysis, tends to always forget that. Tends to forget the fact that, to put it with Lacan, truth and knowledge are different things. Truth has to do with the real, in this case the real sex, something not working. And it's thus a limit to knowledge. There is no knowledge without a limit to knowledge. And very broadly speaking, Lacanian psychoanalysis claims that this is the oscillation and contradiction of modern uh, science, since Galileo and Newton. Hmm? Whereas, in a sense, for Lacan, ancient Greek episteme was nothing but, so ancient science, he goes as far as saying that basically it's nothing but a theory of knowledge based on uh, a theory of sexual knowledge. This is to say, passivity, activity, matter, form, etc., etc. I mean, of course, this, I'm going quick here, but according to Lacan, 
ancient, ancient science is nothing but an attempt to actually uh, put aside the problem of uh, the absence of the sexual relationship. Trying to create imaginarily a cosmos that makes sense, basically. In terms of complementarity between uh, opposite particles that somehow bind. Modern science is much more complex uh, because of mathematization, formalization. And that's one side of it. On the other hand, modern science, which replaces the supposed ancient unity between the sensible body, our body, and the cosmos with letters and numbers and formulas. So modern science has undone that presupposition. But nonetheless, it anyway tries to actually come up with a new always ever new um, totalizing paradigm of knowledge. Hmm? You know, you just check the news, oh, oh my god, they have discovered the particle of God. You know, and in three years there will be a particle of God within the particle of God, etc., etc. But you see, even like in journalistic, uh, ex- the journalistic exposure we have as to science, hmm? uh, the language in which that is framed, of course scientists are not as stupid, but the language in which that is framed is, from a Lacanian perspective, always aimed at the totalization of knowledge. I will stop here. I mean, there's a lot to say, but thank you very much. Okay. We've got some time for questions. Who wants to start? Yes, hi, thanks for your talk. Um, just just um, um, basic, as a basic question. I mean, what is it within language or the structural organization of language that, that introduces or produces difference mm-hmm. or duality? Mm-hmm. I think the starting point in Lacanian theory and then there are exceptions because Lacan contradicts himself often. Um, the starting point there has to do with the fact that psychoanalysis discovers empirically, this is the claim, that there is no language without a problem with sex and no problem with sex without language. That, that, that would be the starting point. So language is differential or language is language because of what Lacan calls there is no sexual relationship. That would be the straightforward answer. Now, the point is, um, what do we methodologically do with that? Because Lacan has a strong claim, um, which is based on the claiming. And this is why, for me, Lacan is not just an anti-philosopher, as it's now fashionable to say. He actually is a psychoanalyst who actually makes very strong theoretical ontological points. But the starting point is in the clinic. According to Lacan, the clinic shows that language and sex um, are somehow incompatible, or that language can retroactively mend or patch up sex only convolutively. And, and this is the, to go back to your question, the realm of difference in a sense. Then the point is like a more philosophical or even anthropological point. Uh, why? But that's the kind of question which is similar to the question, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? 
And on the one hand, methodologically, Lacan says, there is a matter of fact. We speak, to the best of our knowledge, animals do not speak, or at least we don't speak the same language. And we do have a problem with sex. That's what, historically and empirically, the clinic of psychoanalysis has showed to exist. And it has shown to exist retroactively by actually impacting on that hmm, in the treatment. Then the question for me, of course, and this is a crucial question in the book, is can we, moving from the materialist and realist presuppositions of Lacanian psychoanalysis, uh, construct a philosophical discourse, which is also a philosophical anthropology, that tries to account for that parallelism between language and the absence of the sexual relationship. Hmm. And thank you for the question, because it also tells you how, uh, it also gives you a chance to tell how this um, chapter finishes. And it finishes actually by delineating um, a Lacanian-inspired philosophy of nature. I mean, by basically trying to um, say that in spite of a lot of hesitations and contradictions, um, Lacan thinks nature as fundamentally indifferent, and not different. Difference uh, to the best of our knowledge, in this sense, Lacan is very Kantian in a modern sense. Uh, that is to say, he's an agnostic. That's another theme of the book. Um, to the best of our knowledge, uh, difference is the field where language cannot speak sex, very generally speaking. And nature as such is indifferent. Where do we touch on it in today's presentation? When I was talking about the so-called Little difference, anatomical difference. Again, here you have like a short circuit in Lacan between highly speculative theoretical ideas and the clinic or the history of psychoanalysis. For little hands, the anatomical little difference in terms of disparity in genitalia uh, is not so clear. It is almost indifferent. Thanks a lot. I uh, uh, particularly like the beginning part of the talk where you talked a little bit about the need to uh, think a bit about biology when talking about sexual difference and the too hasty separation mm-hmm. of that. But I guess the bit I was wondering about is you, you um, said very eloquently the, the, the problematics of how with the phallic function you have uh, two kind of logical options. You put it, I think, the semblance of the one mm-hmm. or the not one. But I guess what I was wondering is, is it not the case that I thought there might be a bit of a jump between having these categories of the one and the not one, mm-hmm. and then a subject who, does the subject try to fit themselves into this category, mm-hmm. the semblance of the one and the not one, or is the subject actually the semblance of the one and the not one? The latter. The latter. Yeah. Very, 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 very... I have no hesitation in saying that, in my understanding of Lacan. Because it goes back, it goes back to the point I was making at the beginning when I said that one, even more fundamental than the axiom of the, there is no sexual relationship is the tenet whereby there is no subjectivity without sexuation and no sexuation without subjectivity. So how can we think, and um, psychoanalytically this means basically you're not a subject after the, before the solution of the Oedipus complex and the castration complex. So, um, a child, a pre oedipal child, is not a, a Lacanian subject. A psychotic is not a Lacanian subject. And this is also connected with the whole idea of, of, uh, of sexuation in terms of, like, the ex will have been 
a man or a woman. Mm? So there is a total elimination of any essentialism, substance and substantiality with regard to sex. And this is why a number of um, very good Lacanian, from philosophical perspective, certainly good Lacanian psychoanalysts, have a very strong point against gender studies when they say that basically it's we Lacanians who have de-essentialized sex. You have just made like, a, you, a, you have just multiplied uh, substances. Mm. So all, all fashion, let's say, Judeo-Christian at least, take on sex. There are uh, A's and B's, right? And if you don't fit in, it's your problem, right? There are men and uh, there are women, and that's it. And Lacan says, and there are no, no people coming from Auvergne. Because apparently, like, if you come from Auvergne in France, you're a bit stupid. So he says, like, there are A and Bs, but there are no people coming from Auvergne. So that's the traditional, epistemological, but also then mandatory, ethical, you know, and political stance on, on, on sex. The other stance is to say, no, 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 there's something wrong with the two, to say that there are two sexes. Hmm? There are a zillion of sexes. Hmm? We, I'm simplifying, but which is, in a sense, like, at bottom, the philosophical argument of gender studies. The argument of good looking in psychoanalysis is that actually, to begin with, there is no sex. There is no sexual relationship, but there is no sex. There is an ex. There is an animal, to go back to the more anthropological philosophical question, who has a problem with sex, and this problem is never completely solved. This is why we go to and see an analyst. We somehow manage to patch up things. So, there are those exes who will have been men, and those sexes there are those subjects, sorry, or those, uh, not even subjects, to go back to your question. There are those individual ominous sapientes who, are, who will have been men, and those who will have been women. Hmm? Yeah, can I just, uh, I mean, the last bit that I don't quite understand is, insofar as this idea of the not one is actually more closely aligned with subjectivity itself, right? Yeah. It's the, the not one is kind of the problematic of subjectivity. Yeah. How is it that then you have this category man that, that uh, is it not because the not one is also part of the, the problematics of a male subject? I mean... Well, it is, absolutely it is, and I deal with that explicitly in my first chapter, is to say, uh, um, um, I very carefully try to insist on the fact that uh, those subjects, or will be subjects, who are men, are sexuated uh, via the semblance of the one. The semblance of the one. It's believing, let's put it very bluntly, it's believing that you are yourself. That you are a maître, maître, a master to yourself, Lacan says. Which has to do with all the idea of fantasy, etc., etc. So, women are those subjects who are, who are less prone to forget, I'm really putting it very, uh, putting it very simply, we're less prone to forget that they're not really one. One as a unity, totality, wholeness, etc., etc. Clearly, in terms of this language, the assumption here is that both poles are structure, are language. I mean, as a species, we are both one and not one. It's a, it's a question of oscillation. The difference in sexuation has to do with how you relate to the one and its structural failure. 
And this links well with the question before, because in a sense, this is difference, if you want to be more philosophical. Difference, or they not two, if you want to uh, refer back to the title, is precisely the oscillation between the one and the not one, which is not only an opposition between men and women, but also internal to both sexes. Even though a woman is less at odds with the fact that she's not really one. Remember, like Lacan says at one point, if Napoleon really believed he was Napoleon, he would have been crazy. You know, like, but at the same time, we all believe ourselves that, well, we have a name, right? I'm Lorenzo, you are X, etc., etc. So there is a necessity of the, of the one, you could put it like that. But this is all, both in terms of identification and even more explicitly in terms of our sexual lives, it doesn't work. But then, to sort of um, take your question from the other perspective, uh, not only the one of those subjects where sex does man is a semblance, but there, are, there is, on the other hand, also a certain relation, let's call it like that, to the one in uh, women. Because otherwise, the other problem here, which is interesting because here again we have a, a short circuit between classical Judeo-Christian ontology, if not theology and gender studies, um, to say that, oh, women are great because they, they don't believe in the one, right? You, you easily, Lacan is not saying that, because you easily end up with a quite mis- misogynic, but nonetheless quite close to gender studies, paradox enough, idea that, you know, women cannot really say it, but they get something more than men do. Because they are open. Well, they're closer to the truth. Is the truth, there is no sexual relationship, that is to say there is no one coming from the addition of one and one, right? If you are more exposed to the not one, you're closer to truth. This is a reproach that is usually made by, uh, um, by um, um, scholars of gender studies to Lacan, but it, this is not Lacan's point. Women, to go back to your question, so the semblance, men are sexed through the semblance of the one, and then I have two chapters when I try to explain this through the formulas of sexuation. This is just a summary of, of the whole argument. But then there is also like a feminine way of relating to the one. Let me just give you an example. This is in chapter one, and it's a close reading of seminar 20. So the sexual life of those subjects, X, where sex as man, is basically close to the myth uh, 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 of the androgen in Plato. That is to say, I would like to make one with my partner, just to be myself, really. Mm? So it's a fusional fantasy of unity. Lacan says, in order to understand the relation to the one of women, which is phallic itself, but very different, you have to think of the diagram of sexuation, seminar 20, you have to take the myth, he calls it, the feminine myth, it's a quote, of Don Juan. Of course, it's a provocation. But he says, that, on the one hand, you have the, the father of the horde, the Freudian father of the horde. So, basically, what a man wants to be is the father of the horde. Right? Have all women to be himself really one. On the other hand, there is a relationship of those subjects who are sexed as women to the one, which does not revolve around this idea of, 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 of totality, of universal fusion. Is that it has to do with what Lacan calls the one by one. An idea of singularity. Let's put it first like that. 
instead of aiming at a fusional unity, which is, by the way, the bias of biology for Lacan at the same time. So gender studies should criticize biology, according to Lacan, because it is profoundly misogynic in its presuppositions. Um, when one has a different relation to the one in terms of actually being subjectivized as singular and relating to the other sex, in this case man, not as a fantasy of, uh, of totality. I mean, I would say even more, I mean, the hysteric would like to be the woman, the only woman of uh, the father of uh, 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 the father of the horse, Hare. But woman relates to, in terms of the one to man, as a singularity that can never be universalized. Hmm? I mean, there is no set all men. There is no set all women. Hmm? A woman is singular, but that singular is a unity. And how does this singularity relate psycholibidically in the end, because this is a matter of subjectivation to go back to your question. This is not something we decide. We are that, structurally. How does that relate to the one uh, in terms of a one by one? Um, the example, I mean, it will take time to explain thoroughly. I covered this in the first chapter quite in detail. The example here is Don Juan Lacan says because even though he's at the moment possessing the 1,335th woman, there will always be one more. There will always be one more. So you see the two myths, I mean, on the one hand, the myth, the totally masculine myth of the father of the horde, which is basically saying, I have all women, and hence... I am the man. On the other hand, the myth of Don Juan as a feminine, provocative enough Lacan myth, which means that the father of the horde, qua Don Juan, will never have all women. Hmm? Interestingly, as, as um, Andre Green puts, uh, a French psychoanalyst, uh, Lacanian, in one of his books, if you go back to various versions of the myth of the one, very often... Very, very, in, very, in many cases, uh, Don Juan mocks the father. You know, the relationship between Don Juan. Um, so, while man would like, would like to have all women in order to be himself really one, not just a semblance, women, and this is like the phallic involvement of women, I would say, let themselves be taken, but only one by one. And those exposed the limit of the masculine fantasy of totalization. This is not the whole story, because in terms of sexuation, then woman is also exposed to what? To the not one. Sure. Um, <coughs> mine is a short question. You mentioned uh, Alain Badiou in your talk, mm-hmm. and your book is titled The Not Two, so mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could make anything of Alain Badiou's famous two, yeah. and is that sublimation? Is it relevant to yeah. Lacan? Is it interesting? Oh, it's very much interesting. Um, now we can speak about Badiou and Lacan and the connection between the two more in general, but this is a 
good and difficult answer. I know how to answer it quickly because I, I was asked this already, but it's very good and difficult. Uh, basically, what it calls the two is what I call the not two. Because the two he has in mind is a real two. It's op- of course, it's not the idea that you have unity one, unity A, unity B, and then you put them together and you have a two. And clearly the background for these numerical considerations for Badiou and for Lacan, but for Lacan before Badiou, Badiou here is having that to Lacan, is actually a very serious logical mathematical uh, uh, tradition uh, that starts with Frege and ends with Gude. Uh When Lacan speaks about the not two and tries to explain that in the conclusion, um, it's not just using number analogically. Sometimes he messes up, he messes up set theory in incredible ways, whereas, but you as a philosopher trained in mathematics, I mean, tries to create an ontology out of set theory. Lacan is more messy about ideas, but then, but you will ontologize in a very systematic manner. Come from Lacan, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, to go back to your question, what he calls the two, specifically with regard to the scene of love, so we are talking about, Close, uh, close, closely related issues is what I call the not to. Precisely to show that the two at stake is not, is a numerically complex notion of the two that takes into consideration, uh, the naive psychological, uh, theory of number, which for mathematicians does not exist since Frege. So, you know, we still think number in our everyday life in a very naive manner. Um, well, biology still thinks number in this naive manner. That, that would be another way to um, to connect what I said about biology with your question. There's, there's a question here that maybe... is indeed that there are different kinds of jouissance. Uh, to take things more generally, um, I would say my first point is to say that contrary to certain reading of Lacan, Lacan is very clear that the fact that woman somehow enjoys non-phallically, and then we could say more about that, does not mean that she's less phallic than man. For the, for the reason that we were discussing in terms of the one. She's just differently phallic, in this sense, étrange. So, the jouissance étrange is actually what we were discussing earlier. It's woman's way of being phallic, which is not aimed at totalization, like 
man's. Hmm? There is indeed a Jewish sense that is connected to woman's privileged exposure to the not one, that is to say to incompleteness, which Lacan speaks of in terms of, at times also in non so convincing way, in terms of mysticism, of something she feels but she cannot really say, etc., etc. And then there's the question of the hysteric. The hysteric, in my understanding of Lacan, um, Lacan, in seminar 20 at least, Lacan calls the, um, the, the hysteric with a pun, l'homme uh, uh, um, sexuel, which I translate as man-sexual, not homosexual, but man-sexual. What, what does he mean there, in my understanding? In my understanding, I theory of Lacan, at least by seminar 20, um, is the hysteric tries to put herself in the place of the male fantasy. She's more masculine than man himself. The hysteric tries to be the object that would make the father really whole, one. Mm? And in this sense, as Lacan insists in seminar uh, 18, this is a quote, uh, the hysteric is not a woman. And the important point, to, uh, to go back to your question, to get there is that a woman is always, as we said before, singular. It's a woman. There is no the woman. There is no set of women. Hmm? The hysteric does not accept that, to believe very bluntly. The hysteric would like to be the woman. But that is like basically playing and taking, playing uh, the role of the object of the male fantasy, uh, and taking masculinity much more seriously than Man taking take it itself. Take take, take them itself. itself, itself. Yeah. That, that that would be the quick answer, but So it's kind of like a logical impasse between Well remember what like, uh, even Freud says like even in the Dora case, in the sense like who does uh who does um, this hysteric uh, identify with? With a supposedly powerful man. I mean I'm really simplifying things. So at the end of the day the hysteric, in a sense, would like to be herself the man, in a way. I mean, these are two ways of putting uh, <coughs> things together. I mean, on the one hand, she would like to be the arm of the father herself, but you can imaginarily reverse those positions, right? Uh, the, this, to go back to the discussion we had before, in terms of number, the hysteric has a fusional uh, Understanding and she has a fusional understanding of the one, which is even more excessive in this regard than um, man's. Um, we've got time for perhaps one more question. Sorry, I know Bernie, you've had your hand up, but uh, were you really asked? <laughs> Do you want to ask a yeah. question? Uh, so, um, I'm always skeptical when, you know, gay language and transgender crocodiles come into the question because it seems to me as if this is like a kind of politically correct crude uh, biological essentialism, like a uh, kind of more fashionable uh, biological essentialism. And I'm curious, like, if the hyena had, like, only monogamous heterosexual sex with her, with her vagina, would she 
refute the mm -hmm. there is no sexual relationship kind of argument. And I'm, I'm also kind of wondering, I know there is not much time, but how, uh, if there are like other examples that where uh, psychoanalysis can benefit, as you said, from uh, life sciences, and if there are other kind of psychological uh, mm -hmm. kind of contributions from life sciences mm -hmm. to psychoanalysis, what would that be? No, I, I just have to ask you to clarify because if you thought that actually I was, you know, repeating this mantra about oh, okay, there are gay penguins, etc., et then I didn't make my point clearly because that was not absolutely not my point, and that's why actually to remember uh, in commenting on the conclusion uh, Bloomberg makes, according to which sex is the syndrome which can only attractively uh, be diagnosed as male and female, I insisted on the fact that uh, it says, but there are two sexes. Which is basically what Lacan says, in the sense that uh, sex is a retroactive construction, symbolically retroactive, but we are dealing, and I would go as far as, as, as provocative to say, in nature, with two sexes. The one sex and the other sex, which is not one. Whether you happen to be on the one side or the other has not to do with your autonomy, but there are two sexes. And this is what profoundly uh, distinguishes like, in a psychoanalysis from the idea of uh, you know, manifold sexes, which can be studied in nature, and the, the gay penguins, whatever, which I see as a vulgarization and simplification of uh, what begins as interesting ideas in gender studies, but which are by now totally washed down and hegemonic. So, if, if, if I gave the impression that they made that kind of argument, no. I, I'm actually totally opposing that kind of argument. My argument with regard to the animals has to do with the fact that um, the equivocity of sexual standards is by now an issue in the life sciences. And it was an issue to begin with for psychoanalysis since its inception. It's, it's enough to actually open the three essays and, 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 and see what uh, for says about the hermaphroditism. You know, as long as you, and you don't understand there if he's talking about behavioral level or a uh, um, morphological level. But as early as 1905, uh, right, the theory of uh, three, the three essays, he says we are structurally, uh, then you have to understand whether that is behaviorally or even like morphologically, which is also like a scientific point by now, and not The life sciences have not been able to think that until recently. That, that is my point. Uh, what is the positive contact with, with gender studies? Well, of course, gender studies uh, uh, are right in criticizing the traditional normativity of two uh, uh, different sexes which would be natural and perfectly matching, and if you don't fit in, you're just wrong. So, at that basic level, of course, the studies has a strong point. Uh, but that's where it ends. In the inner psychoanalysis, you have two sexes and manifold identifications. There is the level of your anatomical sex, the level of your symbolic sexuation, but we say, we said that anatomical sex makes sense only retroactively through uh, symbolic situation. And then there is the level of the object choice, which is completely different again. So, um, you know, I try to discuss, with regard to the question of homosexuality, I try to discuss 
um, various hypothetical scenarios which could be derived from lacking of psychoanalysis in dialogue with serious gender studies and beyond Lacan, because Lacan, when, 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 when Lacan speaks about homosexuality in, in case, in case uh, histories, etc., he makes a mistake by his own standards, because when he speaks about homosexuality, he has in mind anatomy. So he's not taking himself seriously in that. But on the basis of Lacan's theory of the situation, you could well think of, um, let's say, an anatomical male and an anatomical female forming uh, a uh, homosexual couple. Where homosexuality is to Lacan what? By definition, it's the rejection of the heteros, the other. That, that, that be, you see, like, if you put it like this, it sounds at first like almost reactionary, but then if you think more, the rejection, if homosexuality is the rejection of the heteros, the other, it is the rejection of woman. But woman is no longer an anatomical female. So things get much, much more complicated. Or you can think of an example of an anatomical, uh, an anatomical female uh, sexed as a man and an anatomical female sexed as a woman, symbolically. For Lacan, that would not be homosexuality. So you, you, you see how, in a sense, there is space for a discussion with gender studies, but only if we overcome uh, this idea that, well, speaking about two sexes is demo day. And if you are dealing with psychoanalysis and you are starting from that uh, standpoint, then you are wrong and patriarchal, etc. That's where, for me, the discussion ends. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to draw things to a close on that jolly note. Uh, we, we, we're, I know that some of you had questions that you didn't manage to ask. I'm very sorry. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, it, uh, just, to, just to round things off, just to mention, books are on sale in the shop. Uh, and it just remains really to thank Lorenzo for this fantastic and really refreshing. Well, thank you all. Thank you all. Thanks for the time.